So like I said, we are starting a sermon series where we're going to study together through the book of Acts. And I want to give you a short introduction to the main idea, or rather the the main, uh, a few of the main ideas that we're going to see in the book of Acts. Here's what we're going to find. In Acts, we're going to learn that there is one God. That one God has one church. That one church has been given one mission by their God. And therefore we, as Jesus followers, part of the church on mission, we have one focus in our lives. And so I'm going to let you guess. What do you think we titled the sermon series through the book of Acts? You got it. One. And do I have the title slide? One. The name of the sermon series is One, and we're going to go through it in three different parts. The first part is One Church. Here's why we thought it would be important to study through Acts this way. Um, You may have noticed this. I don't know if you're aware, but a lot of our familiar routines in life, a lot of our familiar routines at church have been flipped upside down or just completely destroyed and thrown away. Therefore, we as a community are literally creating new forms of worship and fellowship, of friendship and study. We are creating brand new ways to be the church together. And as the preaching team and the staff were talking and praying and thinking about it, it struck us. Do you know what the book of Acts is? The book of Acts is a story about Jesus followers creating new ways to worship and be community and study God's word together. And and they were doing that in a world filled with challenge and oppression and unexpected things every single day. And so here's our hope. As we read through Acts, and we read these stories of people thousands of years ago, as they learned from God how to be the church, our hope is it will help us as we learn how to be the church in our always surprisingly new world today as well. Now, That's a little introduction, but we're going to come back to the opening question that I asked. Why did you come to church this morning? Why did you come to church? And like we acknowledged, all of us with questions like this, all of us have the textbook's answers that we know if we had a test, we'd put that down and we'd get the answer right. But whenever it comes to desire and motivation, there's also another set of answers a set of desires that you would probably never write down on the test. And maybe, maybe you're even unwilling sometimes to admit them to yourself. And I think that's true for why we come to church. So here's my challenge to you. As we go through the sermon today, maybe as you go through the week, I want to challenge you to intentionally share with somebody else in your church community What are some of those desires? And if you're really up for the challenge, would you share some of those off-book answers that maybe you haven't even admitted to yourself? And I tell you what, since I'm going to ask you to share, I'll go first, right? Here's one of the main reasons that I come to church on Sunday mornings. I need to get up and preach a sermon. It's um, something I love and feel called to do. 
It's also in my job description, so I am kind of expected to do it. And that's kind of a happy thing, that those two things go together. And so I took it a step further and said, okay, well, that's, that's something I have to do, but why do I get up and preach sermons? And it struck me. I've actually had tests on why you should preach sermons. I've written essays and answers, but I think I do have some other motivations that I probably should acknowledge. And so I don't know if this is weird or not, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to tell you some of the things that, that maybe preachers don't often say about why they get up and preach sermons on Sunday morning. Reason number one, entertainment. I remember the first time that I told a campfire story back when I worked at summer camp, right? And I told the story, and, and I remember it vividly. One of my other counselors came up to me afterwards and was like, Carl, that story was amazing. That one scene where the paint chip fell off the ladder and landed in the guy's cup of coffee. Oh, it was amazing. And I was hooked. From that day forward, I learned that I love entertaining people. I like making people laugh. I like telling stories that get people engaged. It's fun to entertain people. But you know what? Entertainment is a terrible reason to preach sermons. Okay, here's another one. Information. See, here's the thing. I loved school most of my life. Okay, maybe not in the early years, but later on in life, I came to love school. I got to go to seminary. I love studying the Bible. I love the history. I love the language. I love the context. And you know what else I love, if I'm really honest? I love when you think I'm smart. I like to get up and preach sermons so that you come up to me afterwards and you go, oh my gosh, I'd never heard that before. That was so interesting. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You don't have to say that. No, you don't have to. Because I love when people think I'm smart. And you know what? That's a terrible reason to preach a sermon. All right, let's get to some potentially better reasons. Activism, right? We live in a world full of all sorts of problems. We've got problems inside our lives. We've got problems in our relationships. And surely there's massive problems in the world around us. And God gives us a vision of justice and peace and love that says, man, we better get busy working so that we can bring more of God's goodness into this hurting world. I love to get up and preach sermons that result in people getting on the train and so on. Let's do something about it. Now, I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that, but if that's my main motivation, I think that's the wrong reason to get up and preach sermons. Okay, one more. Transformation. I mean, what could be wrong with that? Like, we've acknowledged I've got brokenness inside of me. The promise of God is that by his power, he can heal the brokenness inside of me. He can transform me from something hurting into something healed, from something fractured into something whole. Isn't it good for me to want to get up and preach sermons so that transformation happens? But here's the problem. Sometimes, if I'm not careful, I start to think that maybe I'm the one that's doing the transformation, right? I think that maybe if I preach a good enough sermon, therefore my life or others' lives will be transformed. And the fact of the matter is, and you know this, 
Nothing I do is going to change my life or your life. All of these things, entertainment, information, activism, transformation, and you could probably come up with some other things as well because I would bet, I hope I'm not overstepping boundaries, but I would bet that all of us listening might sometimes listen to sermons with these same motivations in mind. And again, they're not inherently wrong, but I think that any one of them, if they become the primary driver, we're going to miss the mark. So what is the motivation that should compel us to come to church, to participate in worship, to engage in the sermon, to study God's Word? What's the motivation? The answer, I think, comes from the passage we just read in John's Gospel. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's my hope. I hope that if I could acknowledge some of the selfish, maybe pride-driven motivations that I bring to my life, I hope that if I can acknowledge them and lay them at the feet of the cross, that maybe by God's power, my real motivation will become more and more that because of God, we are a people whose lives are always in Christ. That, I believe, must be the single, the foundational, the unequivocal desire of all of our hearts. We know that all of the other desires are competing against it and trying to distract us or overwhelm it, but that desire is the central desire. We desire to be in Christ so that we might live in Christ, so that our lives might be spent every day with Christ. Christ. And this isn't just a Sunday morning at church or maybe in the early morning when I read my Bible or maybe late at night if I pray. This is a everyday, everywhere desire of our hearts. Here's my invitation. I hope that you gather for worship in person or virtually. I hope that I'm preaching sermons. I hope that everything we're doing can become more and more about one singular desire for all of our lives, to be in Christ. And that brings us back again to the book of Acts, a group of people who, just like us, were divided by all sorts of distractions and challenges in their world, but they were trying to push aside those distractions so that the power of God in their midst might be the one thing. In Acts, they were trying to live with Christ be with Christ. One God. Yeah, we can get, uh, there we go. One God. One church. One mission. One focus. So, with that, we're going to jump now into the book of Acts. Uh, The guy who wrote Acts is a guy named Luke. You may have heard the name of Luke before because Luke also wrote one of our four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. But the confusing thing is we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. We've got John kind of in between Luke and Acts. But really, Luke wrote these two books 
kind of together as a two-volume set of one book. And so Luke and Acts are meant to be read as one whole work. And you're going to see that right at the very beginning, in the very first thing that Luke writes down as he writes this letter to the church. So we're going to read now Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I encourage you to turn there now in your Bible, or if you want to open up your Bible app, uh, you can find it there on the SentCov page of the Bible app as well. Here's how Luke starts the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. So Luke starts out his book that we refer to as Acts by saying, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so we get a little uh, insight into why it is that Luke is writing. And what we can determine is both based on how and why he wrote the gospel and how he's starting Acts, is we can see that Luke has a very specific purpose in mind. See, Luke was a researcher. Luke wasn't just trying to hobble together a few stories. Luke set out on a purposeful task. This man that he writes to, Theophilus, may well be a wealthy person, who is funding Luke's ability to extensively research and write, because researching and writing was and is an expensive task. And what we come to learn is that Luke, as an author, has a very clear reason for writing. See, Luke was documenting evidence to give both confirmation and assurance to faith in Christ. Luke was documenting evidence to give both confirmation and assurance to faith in Christ. I mean, think about it for a second. Just imagine you're living around 30 AD, right around the time that the book of Acts is beginning to take place. And you're one of Jesus's followers. So just try to have this timeline in your head, right? You met Jesus around three years ago when he launched his public ministry. And you followed him, and you heard his teaching that was revolutionary. He said, you can talk to God. 
like he's an intimate, familiar father, somebody close to you. You don't have to be afraid of him or far away, but you can talk to him. And Jesus said, this God wants to break down the barriers that divide us from one another. And he said, this God will forgive you. And not only did Jesus teach these incredible teachings, but he was healing people and releasing people from oppression and breaking down broken systems and unjust structures in the world. And so you follow Jesus and you're like, this is amazing. Finally, God's Messiah is going to put things to right. And in your head, you're just waiting for it to all come together, right? Because in your head, you're like, and finally, somebody's going to kick out the Romans. And finally, somebody's going to stop Uh, uh, perverting the temple system. Finally, somebody's going to make it all right. And then Jesus dies. But not only does he die, he's killed like a common criminal, like a nobody. Basically, the Roman Empire laughs at Jesus and says, fine, you're going to keep stirring up trouble. We'll just kill you. Next in line. And so your hopes, as somebody who knew Jesus, have been crushed. But then Christ comes back to life. Christ comes back to life, something that would have been unbelievable then, something that feels unbelievable now, were it not for the hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw it, who ate with him, who walked and talked with him, their very own eyes. If it weren't for that, I don't think anybody would have believed it. And then Christ gives a mission to the church, which we're going to get to. And the church goes on, but the church runs into challenges, oppression, difficulty, questions they don't know how to answer. And therefore, Luke says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me remind you of what Jesus actually said and actually did so that this evidence might be a confirmation and assurance to your faith. He said pretty much the same thing in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He said, he wrote, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, referring to the life and the teachings of Jesus. And so again, we get back, and you're one of the early disciples, and you've gone through hopes and expectations You've had those dreams crushed with the death of Jesus, and now Jesus has just come back to life. And you're thinking to yourself, finally, finally you're going to fix it all. Because again, a little bit of Bible history. The Bible starts with a story of a man named Abraham, and God made this promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you, Abraham, a great nation. And because of how much I bless you and your great nation, Abraham— you will be a blessing to all people. But here's the problem. In first century Jerusalem, Israel, Palestine, Israel was not a great nation. Rome was a great nation. And they oppressively and ruthlessly ruled over Israel. And so all of Israel was waiting around going, God, When are we going to be a great nation again? When do we get freedom from oppression? When are you going to finally strike down all that's wrong and reestablish the greatness of Israel? 
And we see it because the disciples are talking to Jesus. And here's what Luke reports. They ask Jesus after he rises from the dead. The disciples say to Jesus, Okay, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, okay, we get it. Like, you had to die on the cross. That's all fine. But now, right? Now you're going to stick it to the man. Now you're going to fix all of our problems, right? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And here's the truth of the matter. At that time, in ancient Israel, there were a number of options on the table for exactly how the Jewish people thought God might restore his kingdom. They thought God might make Israel into the great nation that God had promised. I want to run you through four main options that the Jewish people had come up with. Four main options that I believe the disciples had right on the front of their minds when they're asking Jesus, is now the time? Are now you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's the options on the table. If you've read through the Gospels, you've met most of these groups. They were all prominent and well-known in their way. So first of all, there's the Sadducees. Now, if you learned the kids' song, I Just Want to Be a Sheep, ba 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 ba. when we meet the Sadducees in Sunday school, we just learn that they're so sad, you see. It turns out, like, sorry, children's pastors, that's actually wrong. See, the Sadducees had a very clear idea of how to restore God's power to the kingdom of Israel. Here was the Sadducees' idea. They said, Rome has a ton of power. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to get in bed with Rome, and then we get to share some of their power. And that sounds like a sweet deal, especially because if we, the Sadducees, just kind of do whatever Rome wants and we try to share their power, they also learned that they could pocket some some of Rome's wealth along the way. And so the Sadducees were trying to restore God's kingdom to Israel by getting political power and pocketing some wealth along the way. Jesus was asked about the Sadducees a few different times. One of the key questions was, hey, Jesus, should we pay the temple tax, the tax that Caesar demands us to pay? And Jesus picked up the coin that had an image of Caesar who claimed to be God. And Jesus said, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. Because in fact, Jesus was saying, grabbing at political power and might is not the way that God is going to restore his kingdom on earth. Okay, if you're not one of the Sadducees, you've got another option. You could go to the other extreme and you could be one of the Zealots. Now, the Zealots, they were real serious people. Here was how they saw it happening. They figured, we just get a big enough army and we start a rebellion and we will violently overthrow the Roman Empire. Sometimes, They took it so far as to, uh, they had a group of assassins who carried daggers in their cloaks and they'd walk around the marketplaces. And if there was a Roman official there or somebody who was too friendly with the Romans, they would assassinate them in the marketplace. 
This group of people was called the Sicarii, which is the word for knife, because they would literally go around trying to kill Romans. And the idea was, if we get in a big enough army, we can overthrow the Roman Empire. Well, turns out, Rome actually was pretty familiar with violence and had no problem eliminating all of the zealots that tried to violently overthrow. And we know how Jesus felt about this because when near the end of his life, Peter drew a sword and tried to defend Jesus, Jesus looked at his disciple Peter and said, if you live by the sword, Peter, you're going to die by the sword because in fact, violence, exercising power over people is not the way that God is going to restore his kingdom on earth. Okay, so if you're an ancient Jew and you're not a Sadducee and you're not a zealot, you can be a Pharisee. If you read the Gospels, you see the Pharisees all over the place. And here's what the Pharisees thought. Okay, we're going to ignore the political stuff. We're going to ignore the violence. We're going to get real specific on the law, on morality. We are going to follow every rule every single time. I mean, they made a list of rules so long, it was too long for anyone to possibly understand. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and here was his criticism. He said, Pharisees, you tithe, right? You give a tenth of what you own. You give a tenth to the church. You tithe even on your mint. Have you ever tried to grow mint? Let me actually rephrase that. Have you ever tried to stop mint from growing? I don't care if you tithe 90% of your mint. It just comes back. The next day, it's like miracle grow. Tithing on your mint is pointless because mint is everywhere. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're so concerned about the rules, you tithe on your mint, you measure out 10%, and you give it away, but you ignore the more important parts of the law, specifically justice for the oppressed. And so legalism and moralism, Jesus says, is not the way that God is going to restore his kingdom on earth. We've got one more option. If you don't want to deal with the politics, you don't want to deal with the violence, you don't want an endless list of uh, moral uh, legalistic laws, then you can join the Essenes. The Essenes said, you know what? We're just going to wipe our hands of it all. We're going to go out into the desert. We're going to get our own little place, and we're just going to make it abundantly clear. We're not with those people over there. No, no, no. Them? Us? No. We are very different from them. And we're not with those people over there. No. We do not associate with them. We're just going to make our own little community and do our own little thing, and we're going to be completely separate from everybody. But you know what Jesus had to say about that? He said, here's the problem. God desires that we love both our neighbor and our enemy. And if we've moved so far away that we don't even have neighbors and our enemies are kept at a long, long distance away, then it is impossible to love them the way God desires us to love them. And so being a separatist is not the way that God intends his kingdom to be restored on earth So the disciples asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? 
And they would have had on the front of their minds the Sadducees thinking political power was the way to do it. The Zealots thinking violence and revolution was the way. The Pharisees thinking legalistic moralism was the way. And the separatists thinking, or the Essenes thinking separatism was the way. And Jesus says, none of that is God's vision for the power he wants to give to his church. Political power, violent power, legalistic power, separatistic power, none of that is God's plan for his church. But rather, Jesus says, you will receive power. Don't get me wrong. The church has power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In essence, Jesus is saying, the church is powered not by political might, not by violence, not by legalism, not by separatism, but by one thing and one thing only, by the Holy Spirit. The church is powered by the Holy Spirit. And that power, Jesus follows up with kind of an incredible next statement. That power is given to you for a very clear purpose. That power is given not for you and me, not for the early church, not for today's church to do whatever they want, but that power is given for a purpose that God gives to us. After he says, you will receive power, Jesus follows it up by saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I love that phrase, you will be my witnesses. It's sort of a a command. It's sort of an instruction. Jesus is saying, God's given you power and I'm telling you to go point people to Jesus with that power, but it's also a little bit of a prediction or just a description. It kind of says, hey, as you're out around living your life, how you live your life is a witness to God. So what are you witnessing to? What kind of example are you setting? If the people around you are looking at you saying, okay, that's how I know what Jesus is like, how do people know what Jesus is like based on the witness that we're setting. And and Jesus gives us a pretty expansive image of this mandate for God's mission. See, it starts in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the right here. The disciples are in Jerusalem. It always starts right here, wherever I'm standing. The only place God will ever use you is exactly where you are right now. Because in fact, That's the only place you will ever be. The only moment you have to live is the present moment, and the only place you can act is the place you're standing right now. Yes, you'll be somewhere else in the future, but when that time comes, you'll be standing right there, right now. It always starts right here. And then it expands, and it goes to Judea, and Judea and Jerusalem together kind of make an image of God's people. Israel. God promised them long ago. He has not abandoned them, but that promise is continuing forward. But then it doesn't end just with a holy huddle of hanging out with God's people. It then goes to Samaria, the sworn enemies of the Jews at that time. And God says, you will be a witness, yes, 
even to my enemies. A group of people where the Jews and the Samaritans were divided radically over ethnic lines. But it doesn't just end there. It goes even to the ends of the earth. And so you can see this expansive vision that I think says to us, God's mission that he has given to his people, the mission has geographic, ethnic, and socioeconomic implications. The world always has and continues to divide people over geographic, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines. We separate ourselves out into neat different groups, and Jesus says, no, 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 as my witnesses, empowered by my Holy Spirit, you will cross every boundary in order to be my witness. We have a mandate to be Jesus's witness. There's one thing that we're called to point people to. We're called to point people to Jesus. There's one thing that we're supposed to witness to. We're supposed to witness to Jesus. And there's only one power that we are to rely on. The power of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. So we're going to continue studying the book of Acts together. We're going to learn more about the one God who has formed one church, given that church one mission, and so that one mission can be the one focus of each and every one of our lives. Which brings me back to the following question. Why did you come to church this morning? Why'd you come to church? Can we be a people who more and more and more acknowledge and even confess, God, I know what I'm supposed to, I know the desire I'm supposed to have, but I admit sometimes I have a whole list of other things that distract me and desires that are uh, not what you have for my life. I want to end with just a, a short little story to illustrate why I think it's so, so, so important to name these desires. It, uh, it's kind of about my experience in college when I used to play ultimate frisbee. Um, this isn't me, but that's a guy named Chase that I played ultimate with. Um, <clears throat> in the early 2000s, ultimate frisbee went through a radical change. See, in many sports, there's two types of defense. There's one-on-one defense, right? Everybody on my team defends one person on the other team, one-on-one. Or there's zone defense. I guard this zone, you guard that zone, and if we all guard our zone, we'll be fine. Well, there was a team from Wisconsin that came up with a new defense, and nobody could figure it out. They were beating everybody handedly, wiping the floor, and nobody could beat them. And the reason we couldn't beat them was because we didn't know how they were defending us. It turned out they'd taken some ideas from one-on-one defense and some ideas from zone defense and smashed them together. And because we didn't know, we couldn't beat it. But the moment people figured out what their new strategy was, we saw teams start to play more competitively and even beat their defense. I remember experiencing it firsthand how frustrating it was to get beat and not even know why I was getting beat. So here's what the story says. 
until we can identify our desires that distract us from being fully focused on Christ, until we can identify our desires, we will never be able to submit them to God. So here's my invitation for you right now. If you'd like, I'd invite you, go ahead and close your eyes. Bow your heads. And just ask yourself, what are the desires that cause me to go to church, to study the scripture, to be in fellowship and community in a life group, to have prayer partners or accountability partners? And if you can be honest, even acknowledge if some of those are not the best desires. And then here's the prayer I invite you to pray. Just say, Lord, here are my desires. Lord, here are my desires. Lord, here are my desires. Amen.